The scripture for our sermon series working through the epistle of Jude this morning is Jude verses 5 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. This is the word of the Lord. thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you uh, for your truth. And I pray, Lord, you help us to, to read and to understand your word today as we talk through these difficult passages. Have your hand upon us, Lord. Open up our hearts. Help us hear what you want to say to each one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're actually going to open with a little video, if it works. In New Zealand. Psychologist Jesse Baring believes we need supernatural beings to keep us on the right track. Jesse devised an experiment to test his theory. Oh. All right, why don't you guys make a circle and sit in front of me here, and I'll go over the rules for you. So you see this, this piece of tape? The first rule is that you can't step over the line. The second rule is that you've got to throw with your back to the dartboard. You're going to be playing this game one at a time, 
and the person that gets the most uh, points on the dartboard gets a very special prize at the end of the day. All right, we'll see you guys in a little bit. Jesse watches through hidden cameras to see if the children cheat. So here we've got a little boy, and you can almost see the machinations in his mind. Let's see if he does it. You can hardly blame <laughs> a six-year-old uh, for doing that. He really wants the prize. Um, he thinks he can get away with it. And it's the normal child response. But what if someone was watching? Jesse runs the exact same experiment on a new group of children and an invisible supernatural being. Now, before we begin, I wanted to introduce you guys to somebody really special who's in the room with us right now. Now, her name is Princess Alice. She's a very friendly, magical princess, and she's got a very special ability. She can make herself invisible. Princess Alice is sitting in that chair right now. With the kids believing they're under the gaze of an invisible princess, Jesse sees something remarkable. Now this little girl, she's being pretty good so far. Clearly not interested in breaking the rules. So here we've got a little girl, and she's actually touching the chair to see if maybe <laughs> she can feel Princess Alice sitting there. Oh, she's saying Princess Alice, so she's clearly not cheating. Jesse's results are always the same. So what we've seen after testing hundreds of kids with this study is that kids that are told that Princess Alice is in the room with them when they're left alone are significantly less likely to cheat. Jess's research suggests that we need to believe we're being watched to eliminate selfish behavior to keep evil in check. <laughs> so we'll be doing this experiment a little later on today. And, uh, you know, the, um, the results of the experiment, you have to admit, are, are, aren't really surprising, are they? It's what you would expect to have happen. But that's actually quite counter to what you hear a lot in our culture today, isn't it? You know, just uh, I think kind of the words of, uh, I'm going like, to use John Lennon's Imagine to kind of talk about sort of, I think, what people often think about these things. He says, imagine no religion, right? No hell below, you know, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living in peace, right? He kind of imagines if you get rid of this view that there are this, you know, these God and all this kind of stuff and religious stuff, then people can all just live at peace. That's the source of all the conflict. But what possible, where is the data to support that theory? You know, uh, in fact, he even spoke after, you know, after the advent of communism, which is, you know, with the lot of belief in God actually resulted in, you know, arguably the most violence we've ever seen from a, a system. Um, now, I'm not going to argue what we really need is a vague, you know, deist, you know, this vague sense that there's a Princess Alice out there or a, a Santa who's seeing if we're naughty or nice. But I, I will say, um, quite ironically for Lenin, oh, oh man, the quote has disappeared. That's sad. Well, what it says is that, uh, ironically, what he says is there's the, the assurance of judgment rather than the absence of it is actually what leads to peace. 
So it's actually quite the opposite. If you want to find peace, it's the assurance of judgment and not the absence of it that actually gets us there. That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, we're in a series, Keep the Faith, as he's exploring the book or the letter, the epistle of Jude, just one little chapter, a very short one. And he exhorts them to keep the faith, to contend, to fight for the faith which is being threatened in this community. Now, a big theme of this letter is judgment. It's a huge part of it. And uh, we're going to talk about that today. Now, you got to admit, when, my guess is when you guys were listening to Daniel read that, weren't you just thinking, mm, warm fuzzies? I love that. You know, that is, just, that is what I just like to, I like to read that every day because I just feel ready to go into the world. Um, but I actually think, ironically, when we really grasp it, it does actually give us hope, peace, and warm fuzzies and impact how we do everything in the world. So that's what we're going to try and talk about today. That, uh, so first we will talk about the passages in Jude, go through some of this stuff. It's a huge theme of it. And we're going through the letter, and you have to actually, part of being faithful to preaching through a letter is you preach through hard topics and good topics, you know, but it makes you go through them all. We're going to talk about that, but then actually turn it on the head and say, why actually is it a real blessing? And hopefully we can walk away with seeing things in judgment and saying, actually, it frees me. It doesn't oppress me. So the blessings of judgment from the book of Jude. So to remind you, as the letter starts off, you know, he writes off saying, you know, I felt, and we talked about this a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was Florence all entrusted to God's people. Um, but I, I mean, I had to write to uh, talk you to condemn. Why? Because certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So they're people who have come into the mist and they're in the fellowship. Now, it's not really like the classic idea that they're false teachers. You know, they're more, they're teaching stuff, but they're more like living this way. They're perverting grace in the nature of their life, which is then sort of leading and influencing people. If that makes sense. And we're going to talk more specifically about what it is they were doing and what is it they were believing and in what sense does it do these really amazing statements, I mean, pervert the grace of God, deny Jesus Christ, even though they're in the church, confessing him? What does that mean? And we're going to talk about that next week because the letter itself actually begins with judgment. So I thought we'd do the same thing, talk about judgment, then talk about the nature of what is it about their teachings and their lives that are perverted next week. And these folks, you can tell, are very influential in the midst of the church. A little bit later on in the letter, just to skip for a second forward, it says, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. Even that implication of shepherds gives a sense of their leadership and influence within the church. They are at your love feasts, which is an interesting term. It's kind of just a word out of comes from agape. We don't know what it is exactly. Was it communion? Was it anything? But it was some sort of gathering. But they were blemishes at it, or even it's kind of a term like rocks or reefs, like the kind of thing a boat would come in that a boat gets, you know, knocked on, those kind of rocks at your very, at your feasts. And, uh, and he starts out the letter, though, to kind of back ourselves up, goes, what are you going to do about this? His first exhortation to them is to remember something. And he says, and then we're kind of backing up right to the start. He says, though you already know this, I want to remind you. 
And this is a huge theme without, within Scripture itself, is the need to remember stuff. That God has revealed stuff, there's stuff we should know, but we need to remember it. The very idea of why we have the Scriptures is God wants us to be able to face the things in our life remembering how he's dealt with it before, remembering his truth, remember what has happened. And we have to actually remember those things because we do forget them. Or maybe it's just me. Do you guys all like keep truth before you at all times? Uh, actually, we're having a communion. One of the key things about that is to remember what has been done and then to be able to go forth with that view on. So that's how he's saying, you already know all this. I want to remind you. And then he talks about three stories here in Scripture. And he does a lot of these threes throughout the letter. It's one of his styles. He talks about three of them. One, he says, you know, the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who believe. And then secondly, the angels who do not keep their positions of authority but abandon their proper dwelling, he kept in darkness. This is a take on Genesis 6. And in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as examples of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So he talks about these three examples. The first one, um, uh, when the Lord, and it's this, this key idea in each one, he, God delivered his people out of Egypt. And it says, then they, it says they destroyed, which a word, this is really from, um, you remember the, that nation that came out that God wanted to send in the promised land, didn't go into the promised land, if you remember. Right, they perished or were destroyed in the desert. Right after two years, go into the promised land. They sent 12 spies up. You know, two came back saying, let's go. You know, God's with us, Caleb and Joshua. But everyone else said, man, these guys are huge. Forget about it. We can't do this. We should not go up there. And basically their condemnation was they refused to believe. You know, they did not believe that God could, was with them. They couldn't trust him. They couldn't be with him. And as a result, they perished in the wilderness and God raised up the next generation teaching them to trust in him and save him through those 38 years and sent them into the promised land. Uh, the second one, as it talks about the angels not keeping their position, the issue was even angels here were condemned for they left their position of authority and they kept uh, in darkness. We'll come back to this one in a second. Um, and then the last one, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the surrounding towns gave themselves up for sexual immorality and perversion. They were judged. So each of these are kind of these groups, right? There's one of them, um, you know, uh, and, and all kind of hinting at it. One was they were like part of the people to start off, but they weren't really of the people, and God was able to judge them. Second one was an issue of authority, which you can see them kind of abandoning authorities implied in the letter. And then here, it's the sexual immorality kind of stuff, which was obviously a big issue here. Authority, power, greed, uh, sexual morality appeared to be the heart of the stuff that was going on. Now, you might be reading this right now, and I'm sorry I'm going fast. There's a ton of scripture in Jude. So I'm just kind of walking through here, so I apologize if it's going too fast. I'm going to try to keep us on the main pieces that I think are critical. But one thing you might be thinking to yourself is, you know, I don't remember this. Angels do not keep the position of authority, but abandon their proper dwelling. Easy kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment for the great day. And people are going, I don't remember that. Where is that in my Bible? Well, it's not. And, uh, <laughs> and, and there you go. That's my issue, all right? Um, remember I said before that Jude is probably the least, I mean, other commentators are the least, probably the least studied, least preached book anywhere in the New Testament. One of the reasons is because it contains weird stuff like this. It's not in the Bible. Um, what this is, by the way, is the, um, it's a commentary on Genesis chapter 6, which was widely held 
uh, not just in one place, but all, this was the generally held belief of uh, how to understand Genesis chapter 6 at the time of Jude. And that's one reason also they, the general, we don't know the audience of this letter, but it's generally thought to be Jewish people probably in Israel to whom all these, these kind of teachings would have been, you know, nothing new. This is, by the way, what it's doing a commentary on, a very weird verse from Genesis 6 where it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And when the sons of God, you know, believed to be the angels, went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then you have this judgment that sets up the flood, right? And uh, now many people, while people still hold to the belief that there was angels, other folks say, well, no, the sons of God, they're talking about um, the line of Seth, you know, became corrupted and went with the line of Cain. We are not going to do a lot of work on Genesis 6 in this chapter this morning. Um, but something you ha do have to spend a little time with on Jude is this is not the only weird kind of extra biblical reference. This one, there's another one from the book of Enoch. And many people think this is, the thing he's doing here really is riffing on Enoch, but there's actually a lot of teaching. There's a common teaching. He's very much from the milieu. There's, you might have read this weird thing about Moses and the, the body of, and all that kind of stuff. That was from the Assumption of Moses, another weird writing. So I'm hopefully that bothered you. Your biblical knowledge is enough to go, where the heck is that? You do that about three times in Jude. So is it problematic? Let's just talk briefly about that. Um, no. Good enough? All right, good. Let's just, uh, <laughs> let's just move on. We got that, right? No, I mean, the, the, the issue is, you know, what's he doing um, with this other stuff out here? Is he, is he saying that there's all these other books in the Bible and not? Is Jude unclear as to what the canon is? Should we not have it? You know, and, and there was this up. Jude was the la you know, one of the last books, you know, adopted into the New Testament canon. But it's, it's not just Jude, right? This is a lot of parallels in Second Peter as well, of this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, to say well, one thing, it is there, so bottom line. But um, it's also, to, to quote something is not necessarily to say that you give complete authority to everything it's part of. And it's actually, there's a lot of weird stuff in First Enoch, for instance, that is not anywhere near this letter. You know, and you can, and he's, and he's more than capable of saying, hey, that piece of the, what's in First Enoch is, is actually a biblical idea or something we knew that happened or was an understanding of it. And it's also like, I mean, Paul at some point even quotes, remember, a, a Cretan poet in Acts 17. And he doesn't mean he thinks all Cretan poets are speaking from God, but he's saying there's an aspect of it which is true, which I'm bringing out for now. So I don't think it's a problem like that. And, and it's there. And it's, it's, there's three of these things there. I mean, to me, I, I like the analogy. I thought, you know, at the start of the, this sermon, I quoted a, you know, uh, a New England researcher. You know, but it doesn't mean that everything he says is true or right. But there was an aspect of what he said I wanted to bring forth right here. You know, or I quote C.S. Lewis, and it doesn't mean I think everything, but I think there's an aspect of what he says is true. Now, by the way, that analogy, I tested with Daniel earlier this week, and I said, does that resonate for you? And he said, no. So if it doesn't resonate with you, that's fine. It resonates with me. So anyway, we'll move on. So, but this is something you need to know is in Jude, and you've got to deal with it, and we'll deal with it again as we go. So moving on. The, the key part that makes it not a problem, though, is um, for me and I think for other folks, is there's nothing in his quotation 
that is critical to how he's understanding it. It isn't like flip a biblical truth on its head because of some weird thing. It's all sort of supporting illustrations quickly given. One, two, three, one, two, three, Sodom and Gomorrah, that one. And as you guys all know what happened in this middle thing, you know, three uh, examples of judgment and each one depicting a different thing of this group, right? Of these different groupings to understand what's happening now. And that basically that God was able to see this stuff and he was able to judge it before. Remember that when you're dealing with what's going on now. He's going to do another triplet here. I'm going to bounce ahead to a couple verses. And these three people are all individuals. So it's a little different of uh, three, uh, um, three different folks. It says, woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's era, or Balaam's era. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Now, what's interesting about all three of these characters, and I think that really is relevant to the nature of what happened at their church, is um, all three of those kind of looked like they were doing a good thing. They all kind of appeared righteous, but God knew that something wasn't right. You know, remember in Cain? We think about Cain killing his brother, but remember what was the backup? What was the story? Cain brought an offering, and God liked Abel's offering, not Cain's. So it seemed like he was doing the righteous thing. But God actually went to him and said, Cain, like, basically, I know your heart's not right. You know, we don't, it's us looking at it's even hard to figure out what's wrong with his offering. But God knew something was wrong with his offering. And then later he slew Abel. You know, he slew Abel. So obviously it was. Something was wrong and it manifested itself. But the key is God saw it and it looked good. Balaam, very similar thing. You know, King of Moab took a foreign prophet, Balaam, and said, now curse Israel. And Balaam says, hey, hey, no, no, I, I can only do what God tells me to do. I go off, I listen to God, and he blesses them. And the king of Moab goes, don't do that. You know, take all this money, curse them. And he goes, I can only do what God says. And he blesses them three times. Man, what a righteous guy Balaam must be. But on the way there, God was in, right, got in his way and said, basically, if you remember Balaam's donkey and all that, he gets in his way and basically says, I know what you're planning is bad. Watch it. So he knows what's ticking away in Balaam's heart. And then you saw like right after this, Numbers 31, he had actually gone to the king of Moab and said, actually, here's another way you can do it, mess up Israel. And they were judged. So basically, he knew that even though God didn't allow him to curse Israel and it appeared righteous, he knew that what was going on inside. And in a similar way, Korah's rebellion. Korah is one of the Levites and he, he stood up there and said, hey, you know, why is Moses and Aaron are kind of putting themselves forward like they're better than the rest of us? And it appears that he's almost like defending God's honor and trying to do what's best for the people of God. You know, going, hey, you know, Moses and Aaron, we shouldn't, these guys are kind of getting, you know, putting themselves out there. But God actually knew, no, no, your heart's not right. God put aside Moses and Aaron. You know, and, and ultimately, it's actually a similar issue. You have, your problem is with the authority of God. You're denying the authority of God. But again, not in word, right? But that's what was happening inside. And ultimately, God knew it and God acted. So we have three of these kind of situations that basically they look like the really religious folks. And then you see this next thing is here they are. Where are these people? They're at your love feasts. You know, they're like shepherds. They're probably giving lots of advice and lots of wise stuff. You ever seen folks like that? They sit there and they talk a great Christian game. But something's not quite right. You know, and that's what was these folks. Their lives didn't match up with what's going on. I'm sure they talked a thing. They were very boastful. They were other things. They would compliment people. 
but he's basically saying, hey, but God knew, and God, God's not the fool with this. And he describes these people. They're eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. These are all Old Testament imagery as well. This is like Ezekiel 34, shepherds who feed only themselves. Clouds without rain. Remember, rain's a beautiful thing. We, we don't always like rain. Ancient world loves rain. Why? Because it is life and it is water and it feeds everything. And you're seeing this beautiful rain cloud and there's nothing. Our crops end up unwatered. Blown about. You know, they're like trees that yield no fruit. You know, they're like waves of the sea foaming up their shame, blackest, darkest, and reserved forever. And then he gives them the assurance. Enoch, again, this is quoting Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied about these kind of folks. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of their ungodly acts. They're going to be judged. And again, what Enoch's quoting here is kind of scriptural stuff, if that makes sense. So again, he's riffing on it. But you see the main, what is the main comfort to these folks? God has judged. You know, in the past, look at these things. We know that God has made people, you know, seeing this stuff. God knows what's happening in their hearts. They may try to trick all of you and walk into the midst of your thing and think they're talking smart, but God knows exactly what's going on. And ultimately, God will judge. You know, the Enoch promise. Right? And this was to be what? This was to be a comfort to them an assurance and a comfort. But are they an assurance and comfort to you? Do you like hearing all this nice stuff about judgment? Cool, condemnation, rah, vitriol. Some people like it. Um, I was actually just recently, two comments I think are emblematic uh, that I actually heard just recently in the last couple of weeks. One person said when they, that all this talk about judgment and stuff in the scripture is just a turnoff. You know, it's a really turn off to me. It's turn off when I talk to other people, things like that. And the other person said, when I hear language like I see in Jude, it sounds just like the far extremes of our political discussion. It sounds like the kind of vitri, you know, vitriol that we see in these things that we hate and we feel are wrong. I actually think both of those are instructive kind of objections as you think about them for a moment. The fact that we're kind of uncomfortable with judgment or talking about judgment, that's usually... Um, not a problem you find among people who are oppressed. For them, it is darn good news that people, you know, you got some, you got some terrible dictator, you got some folks, you know, who are really suffering horribly. The idea that God is going to set things right, that God sees this thing, that no one gets away with something, that power I don't have, God has, and they don't have it, is really good news. Oftentimes, when we don't like the idea of judgment, it means we're probably in a pretty good position. You know, it's kind of a complaint of the suburbs and the affluent. You know, we're all doing real nice. I, I like the way things are. Judgment generally is not so great for the affluent, by the way. <laughs> the ones who have stuff, you know, judgment's like for those who are oppressed by our current system. And the second, the second objection, um, the vitriol. Part of that objection of saying that we hear the kind of vitriol on both sides, right? Uh, you see, talking about judgment, Dan can't handle it. <laughs> and... Uh, I thought it was because we're in New Communion, and they are, you know, unless your heart's right, don't come, you know, that's what they say. So, no, I talked to them earlier. They have something they're going to see. But I will publicly humiliate anyone else who steps out during my sermon. <laughs> no, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Back, back to judgment. All right, you know, as long as we're on light topics. Um, 
I did lose my train of thought, which I do frequently. Um, all right. Right, the vitriol and the political ends, right? One of the main problems and implied in that objection is what? Is that they're using the same kind of language I see here God using. And if I don't like it out of their voice mouths, I don't really don't like my God saying it either. And how can God be this loving, caring, merciful God and get this kind of language? I would argue there is a comparison between the kind of language God does and the language you see on these political extremes, but it implies something thoroughly the opposite. I would argue that um, the reason that they're basically almost like putting themselves in God's shoes. They're making, they're making themselves the, you know, the arm of vengeance and the arm of wrath. And, and I would even argue further that the reason you're doing that is because you don't believe that God has it. That there is a denial of judgment being the Lord's when you feel you need to take judgment and vengeance yourself. When you need to cancel people and say, that person should never have a voice again or be heard or spoken or things like that. And again, I'm not, I'm not arguing for passivity, but there is this wrath that comes out of a lot of folks that is, I think, comes out as a denial of, um, I think when we are comfortable in the judgment of God, it totally changes the way we come into it. And let me just um, give you a support here. Remember in Book of Romans, he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And here's the key thing. Do not take revenge, revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And implied in that is that we don't leave room for God's wrath. We try to do it ourselves. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a radical sense that you can act in this radical way towards even your enemy because God is the one who, you know, wrath is God's, judgment is God's, so we can totally trans, uh, uh, transforms the way we can act. I mean, Miroslav Wolf talked about this idea, <clears throat> and I don't, I don't have a quote by him, but if you guys, the, you know, Croatian, Croatian, Croatian theologian who worked profoundly towards reconciliation in the Balkans in light of the just horrendous genocides that happened there and worked towards reconciliation. And he says, when we can actually do, we can actually embrace the other, as he said, embrace this one who's done horrible things because I believe in God's wrath, that I believe they'll answer to God, they don't have to answer to me, I can actually embrace them and love them in a powerful way. Because I think oftentimes when we think if we're gonna reconcile with somebody, we need to paper over what they did or pretend it's not that bad or forget about it. None of that. You remember it, you call it for what it is, but it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. I will repay. You can give him water. You can feed him. And it's not a power, not only that God has it, but that God, it's not just that, oh, I have to believe God does it, but there's a sense that God does it right. He will be just. He sees everything. What do you know? Honestly, what can you do? 
And keep in mind, now, one thing I want to be, make a careful distinction on is you could take this to the idea that governments aren't supposed to have any actions like this. That's different. Individuals in the government are different. Remember, the government is a minister of God, in some ways carrying out that stuff. So I'm not arguing, you know, because you could take it in all kinds of different ways. This is individual ethics we're talking about. But I think people still try to act like a minister of God or in place of God in themselves when they don't. And, um, and as we read, it's actually throughout the scripture, remembering judgment is perpetually changing us, right? It's, it, and it's like, it helps us praise God, helps us live at peace and hope. It's throughout the Psalms, right? Psalms are all, all over the place. When we're praising, getting hope, trusting God, because it's per perpetually reminding us God's going to judge. God's going to do what's right. You can live in this broken place because God has it, right? He says, you know, let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, right? He comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. The Lord reigns because of that. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. So we are actually unburdened in a sense, from the, from the burden of having to carry out vengeance ourselves. And that should free us to love and to care for people. Um, and realistically, what does this ha how does this work out in our lives a lot? You know, it doesn't mean you never take action, but there's a very different action when you, you know, try to, you know, even a movement politically or an individual you're reconciling with, when you know it's, you are not trying to carry out vengeance. Right, oftentimes, reconciliation is stained by the need for vengeance, and it can't happen. You know, you don't talk to someone, I don't need to avenge you. But, and every time something happens to us, be it as a big political thing, or if it's an individual act, we have two choices, right? We, well, actually, we either just give it to God, say, God, I lift this into you, or I need to take some action regarding it. Talk to them, do whatever, whatever that action is. But we often take a third route. We don't do anything or can't do anything, and we don't really give it to God. We take that third route, which is we feel like we're trying to do it ourselves. We're trying to venge. What, what does that look like? That looks like anger. That looks like vitriol on yourself. That's that frustration, that bitterness, that passive-aggressive stuff oftentimes. It's because you're actually you know, impotent to take judgment, and you're not taking action, but you're still trying to kind of do it. And by the way, Executing judgment yourself when you have no power is not very effective. <laughs> it tends to destroy you. <laughs> you know? and, 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 and so we're, that is, that's really that radical piece. We're going, God, it is yours. And if you need to take action, do that. If you don't, you give it to God and say, God will do. And that's essentially the choice you make. So I was with a guy, um, and we were, you know, uh, whatever, he was in the substance abuse you know, place I did with spirituality group. And he said, he said, I stopped believing in God and he gave me the exact year, the month, the day, and the time of day. And I grew up and I said, you know, what happened? He said, you know, he was in combat and it was right there. He said, my, the buddy who was the most, you know, the most uh, godly person here to meet, strong Christian, wife gave birth two days before, viciously killed before my eyes. He said, at that point, I said, there is no God. What kind of God could possibly do that? I mean, you understand, don't you? But uh, 
you know, and as we spoke, he goes, you know, even if I, if I, if I could even believe, I got, a, I got some things to say to him. All right. But you see, by him denying and saying there is no God, and he's trying to bring comfort to himself, what do you think happened to him? He just became imprisoned to the bitterness. It, it granted him no peace. It granted him no relief to say there is no God. It just granted him a prison of fun, a prison of pain, a prison of bitterness, prisoner of memory, prisoner of a desire to act in vengeance and justice that he didn't have the power to do. Drove him ultimately to drugs for comfort. So many people do. So much of the, you know, so much substance abuse is just a need for comfort. And you realize, you know, one thing we say is that you can go through these psalms again and again, and they start with anger. You ever notice that? Probably half the psalms or a third of the psalms start in anger. And, then, and God's assurance that he calls things is one of the great comforts that they find. But why didn't God judge that? Why does God allow stuff like that? And this is why this is so key, because God knows all things will be called to him. That, all, that no one gets away with anything. God does not have that insecurity. God will make all things right. He makes all things new. He, makes, he will make that right with that person. But what you have to understand is judgment is God's unusual act, as J.I. Packer would call it. It's his reluctant act. God does not desire judgment. And you should take that as a sign. You know, God doesn't want to judge, right? He loves us. He made us. He's, God's normal act is mercy. That's his desiring act. You know, it says, when he sent Jesus into the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's desire is to save not to judge. Judge is when there's no other alternative and it will happen. It grants you that assurance, but God wants people to turn. And what, did he, what was his ultimate, when you come to the bottom of Jude, what do you think his, his advice to the people he was writing to us? Okay, these people have done these horrible things. Here's all this judgment's going to happen. You better make sure you get them out of your midst, right? It's not. His final advice to them, he said, but you, dear friends, and we'll talk about this more in a couple weeks, this passage. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And here's how you are. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. You, you go out on a rescue mission. <laughs> you go out there armed with knowing God does all that stuff. He does the judgment stuff. You are free to show mercy, to snatch from the fire, you know, to help, to take the timid, the hurting, the ones who are underneath there, and to care for them. That's really the God, you know, that is what we are called to. And it's that judgment, actually, which allows us to say, God, you have that. I don't have to paper it over. I have to pretend it doesn't exist. I just know that's not my job. Man, and that frees you, that you can be merciful to even the most 
harsh person like that. A person who's done the hardest thing you can embrace. You can snatch them from fire. 